0: This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Uh, the title is Concealed Ovulation? And In fact, I will be talking much more about conspicuous ovulation. As you see illustrated here by a female chimpanzee in Gombe National Park who is in peak swelling, at this state, the males around her, multiple males in the group, drop absolutely everything they do. They do nothing. They don't eat. They follow single file, and they try to mate with her as many times as possible. She is queen for a day. Not, it doesn't look very comfortable. She can't even sit down because her perineum is completely swollen. It's actually also injured, which you will see on one picture. They tend to bite each other when they fight. Uh, very, very different from something, uh, anything you see in humans. There is a lot of other species that have uh, swellings like that too, conspicuous swellings of the perineal uh, region, uh, the perineal region, that signal ovulation, and people in the field have been able to measure that. In chimpanzee Tobias Deschner and my former PhD advisor Christoph Bush actually measured hormone, hormones in the wild, showing that peak swelling coincides with ovulation. So it's an honest signaling of ovulation that is narrowly tracked by the males who follow these females around. Now, we talked about the power of comparative analysis, and uh, Charlie Nunn, a while back, looked at the phylogeny of cercopithecine monkeys with tails, and asked the following question, where do we observe swellings? And it turns out the vast majority of these sexual swellings are found in species that live in large groups that have a lot of males interested in inseminating a female when she's ovulating. It's not a perfect match and I'm very glad that, that the gelada baboons were mentioned because it turns out this is the only species of non-human primate that has a temporary breast. It's not a breast, it's more a blistering of the chest skin in the female That honestly advertises ovulation in this species. Why would this have evolved? These monkeys eat grass. It's the only other primate species that's a grass eater. The other one is you and I when we eat grains. And so they spend all their time sitting on their butt and it would not be very helpful to signal if they had a swollen behind so they swell the chest. But it disappears when they're not ovulating. And as often these correlations in phylogenies, which for us evolutionary biologists is like the closest we get to an evolutionary experiment, because it's a historical science, evolution does hap- doesn't happen again, uh, it's not perfect. There are exceptions. There are some species that are monogamous, such as gibbons, that have small swellings. And there are some species, very important study species, like the Hanuman langers that live in multi-male groups and do not have swellings. I'll focus on the hominins, the apes. So um, among our more closer relatives, we have the lesser apes, the, 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 the gibbons and the siamangs. Interestingly, they provide, you know the, 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 the apes are like the, the plateau, a menu of different mating systems. Mating systems are the prevailing ways in which individuals in a species go about reproducing. So gibbons are monogamous, they're highly territorial, they're also extremely vocal and sing beautiful duets every morning and every night, and they they use those to bond and to defend their territory against other monogamous groups. Gorillas usually are single male groups that have very large groups of females, and the resident female actually uh, is the only one who sires offspring. Uh, uh, Orangutans are really interesting. They have a dispersed mating system with two alternative mating strategies, small males that bypass female choice by force copulating the females and large males that use their long calls and are chosen by the females. And they now are closest two species of closest living relatives, the bonobos and chimpanzees, with two very contrasting system of dominance, male dominance in the chimpanzees and female dominance in the bonobos. But a similar arrangement of every female ovulating advertises it via swelling, and um, many, many males, most males in the group will mate with them. Interestingly, in our two closest living relatives, it's the females that disperse. And this is a case where the swellings cannot be that honest. Swellings can remain for months on end when a young female transfers to a new social group. In these cases, these swellings now act like a social passport. There is no ovulation, but she's extremely attractive to all the males that will accept her very rapidly. She has a lot of political work to do with the females to get accepted by the females of her target group. And that's where we come in. Humans are very much a beast of their own making. We decide what our mating system is. Um, very interestingly, what is stunning about our mating system is that, like, unlike any other primate species, we live in very large groups, and within these groups, we find a lot of pair bonding. Not exclusive, but a lot of it. In fact, so much of it that it's more important, it seems, than sexual orientation. There are now 34 countries that legally accept same sex marriages. So, pair bonding seems to be something really important in our species. I want to quickly describe the idealized um, uh, human menstrual cycle, which is named after menses, which refers to the moon. And it's the, vine- the, the beginning of a menstrual cycle in an idealized typical form that I will convince you doesn't really exist. Is that day one is defined by the onset of bleeding? Humans actually bleed more than most other species of primates. We still don't know why. Uh, that's known as the period. And that's followed by the proliferative phase. That first half of the cycle is known as the follicular phase. That's when the follicle, usually about a dozen follicles in one ovary on one side, start competing, and one of them will ovulate the egg. That's ovulation, assumed to be at day 14. All these things are theoretical in the textbooks. And then the second phase is called the luteal phase, named after the corpus luteum, which is the yellow body. And uh, that is when a a pregnancy can establish itself. It's known as the secretory phase. The, The endometrium has built itself up. And if there is no pregnancy, then everything is shed again starting at day one. It turns out that this is tightly regulated by a series of hormones, four principal ones that are made by the pituitary and the ovaries, and then also by the follicle themselves and the the follicle that had given birth, the winning follicle out of 12 or so that generates one egg, um, becomes a a um, hormone-secreting machine. So these these cycles, very importantly, that's true for all apes, They they are spontaneous, they are cyclical, but they are extremely variable. And that is something, I will, the theme of this talk is variation and variability. And I thank the speakers before for introducing the importance of it for evolution. So this is a, a, a busy uh, graphic that shows measurements of, of, uh, of estrogens, estradiol, the principal estrogen, in 20 Swiss women. It happens to be done in, in, in my home country. So this is the inter-cycle and inter-female variation in the cycle, and the, the same is true for the other three hormones. So there really there is no such thing as a typical cycle. Cycles can vary by many days, and uh, that has played tricks on a lot of people who were trying to use natural family planning based on the temperature method, which is, it can work, but only if people don't make mistakes. It has about a 30% failure rate in a year. And I'm told, I read in the New York Times, that there's a whole movement away from hormonal contraceptives don't forget, we all make mistakes, and these mistakes can result in the next generation. So the norm <laughs> for menstrual cycle really is uh, that there is variation. Typical cycles occur rarely. This is a, a very large sample of, of self-reported cycle lengths in different countries across the world. And this is what is in the textbook, the 28-day cycle. You know, that, that's an exception. So uh, the the fellow, who a a German um, uh, obstetrician who who actually discovered the corpus luteum, said this about menstruation: that das regelmäßige an der Regel ist ihre Unregelmäßigkeit. The only regularity of the menstrual cycle is its irregularity. Now, an interesting question that many people are interested in is what, with regard to when you have highest ovulation probability, which is around day fourteen in a so-called typical cycle excluding the so-called irregular cycles, when is the highest probability of conception? It turns out it's slightly before, a couple of days before ovulation. So if you count on the fact that day 12 is your highest chance, that's only true if you ovulate on day 14, and most of the time you don't. It might be on day 18, and then you, you, know, you were too early or too late. And so this would be the highest <coughs> conception probability. But if you add in the so-called irregular cycle that includes a lot of non-pathological, just normal variation, a big problem in modern medicine is that normal variation can become considered pathological instead of part of natural variation, your peak conception is a completely different day. So one important observation about humans is that humans, in contrast to the apes, and we know this from time matings in captive apes, if you Put captive apes together when the female is ovulating, you get a pregnancy, almost always. Humans have extremely low fecundability. On average, it takes you know five menstrual cycles for a couple to, uh, a couple to uh, establish pregnancy. And Robert Edwards, who won the Nobel Prize, we talk about Nobel laureates here all the time, uh, for IVF asked himself why is it so difficult to make babies in our species and he was just opining that it might be a kind of adaptation to the import to, to pair bonding because pair bonding is so important in a species that has helpless young that costs so much and are born, are born at such a rapid pace there 's another uh, aspect and i 'm glad that Kristen Hawkes is here is that it turns out that In natural situations that are not Western or farm populations where people feed themselves by finding food, women have far fewer menstruation cycles over life, around 40 instead of 400 you now see in a modern woman a woman living in a westernized industrial society. Which means that there are very few women in a particular group that are actually ovulating compared to the number of males that could be interested in fertilizing her egg especially given that humans have evolved longevity through the help of menopause, which includes old men that are around that still make sperm, that have many more s- mutations in them, but they could still be vying for the- these ovulations. So the operational sex ratio, the number of men who could potentially fertilize a female who's ovulating, is almost 100 to 1 in human, uh, human societies that are you know, hunter-gatherers, which is remarkable. So that's a, a completely new situation. And uh, could it be that this pair bonding I mentioned, that's so widespread in all described human societies, might have come out of mate guarding? If you're a young guy, what are you to do if you have old powerful men who try to vie for the ovulated egg of your partner? A very interesting idea. Now, do humans regulate when they have sex based on when they think ovulation happens? If you want to find out something about human sexual behavior, it's really hard because you can't hold the candle and observe, right? So you have to ask people. So the last people you want to ask are men uh, because they will exaggerate and show off. And so, so you want to talk to women, and in this case 20,000 women from 13 different countries, not on oral contraceptives. And you ask them, did you have more sex before? the the middle of your your last menses or after, and then you calculate the odds ratio. And the answer is there is no indication that people have more sex around time of ovulation because they would have to report that they have more sex a few days before the middle of the cycle, which they don't. And that shouldn't be surprising because just like a lot of other primates, the vast majority of sexual behavior in humans is non-reproductive. Even in chimpanzees where you have a clear and honest advertising on ovulation, Richard Wrangham calculated that for a grand total of six surviving offspring, there's up to 6,000 copulation. So somebody passed that to Rome to inform them about this. So really what I'm trying to argue is that if you compare the different mating systems uh, in, in our closer and distant relatives even – Conspicuous ovulation seems to be the rare thing, which means concealed ovulation. Yes, ovulation in humans is concealed, but it's nothing we should spend too much time maybe uh, trying to explain as a human specialization. Our two closest living relatives, who by definition shared a, a common ancestors, when we all shared a common ancestors together, have derived conspicuous ovulation. And that's what needs explaining. And I'll show you a couple of adaptations they have to this new state of affairs. The the backdrop of apes and many monkeys is actually that ovulation is not honestly declared. So... That doesn't so it means that we have the ancestral trait, which doesn't mean that an, an ancestral trait can gain new adaptive functions, right? So inconspicuous ovulation could have derived functions in our species, and several interesting proposals have been made. Sarah Herdy, who studied infanticide in the Hanuman langurs that don't have a swelling but live in multi-male groups, argued that confusing paternity by not advertising ovulation might be the best pr- protection against infanticide. It might contribute to stronger pair bonds, like the late Frank Marlowe argued. Or it might promote paternal care and provisioning, uh, an idea that Owen Lovejoy uh, has tried to, to push. It might facilitate clandestine mating, opening female choice, the opposite of orangutans, where you might be forced to copulate with one of these little guys. If your partner doesn't know when you ovulate, you're much freer to go and mate with the person you want to be inseminated with. And very interestingly, more recently, it might limit female rivalry, which might be very important in a setting of more complex societies with many females that benefit from not competing more than they already do. So... As in biology, you often, in, rather than either or, it's a yes and. And I would argue that possibly some combination of all or some of these above is what happens. And I'd like to talk about the males a little bit. So this is a lineup uh, that my former boss, uh, Alan Dixon, used to call uh, Spot the Irishman. This is famous Adolf, uh, Adolf Schultz, who was a, a, a Swiss-German-American a primatologist who works at Johns Hopkins a very, very long time. Did these drawings of apes and humans without any hair? This was based on caliper measurements. One of the things that he measured was testis size, and actually Sandy Harcourt and colleagues in, in a paper in 1981 showed that if you make a regression between body size and relative testis size, humans fall away from the chimpanzees together with the orang- orangutans and gorillas where there doesn't seem to be much sperm competition, so not direct competition for access to a particular egg. Uh, several years ago, with Alan Dixon and Matt Anderson, we actually measured the energy production in sperm and showed that chimpanzees have huge outboard engines and our sperm are completely ridiculous ridiculously duff, 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 one-tacked engines. <laughs> it turns out that <coughs> Chimpanzees and bonobos produce a copulatory plug. That is the consistency of a gummy bear. I hope nobody is eating a gummy bear. It forms instantly after ejaculation and right behind about three billion sperm that are deposited very close to the cervix. And the next male that mates better displaces it. Uh, If he doesn't have the length, then he will not displace it, and the first male will probably fertilize the female. These are made from a protein that has rapidly evolved. We heard about adaptive evolution from Tatum. No sign of rapid evolution in humans. Lame. Full of mutations. No sign in the gorilla. No sign in the orangutans. Gorillas even have stop codons. But in chimpanzees, a duplication of cementer in one and full of adaptive mutation, changing the protein, making a better plug. And then, very interestingly, uh, there is no canine, no strong canine uh, sexual dimorphism in humans. The only other primate species that don't have canine sexual dimorphism are all monogamous. Curiously, gibbons, who that seem very monogamous, have canine dimorphism, so it's biology. Don't look for too many rules. Uh, you might have heard about this book that's quite dated now, but it was a New York Times bestseller. It kind of argued, discover you in a bonobo. It's just Judeo-Christianity that hides the fact that you should be like a bonobo. None of what I tell you is prescriptive. If you want to be a bonobo, have at it. You know? But you can't argue based on comparative biology that you should be a bonobo. So, uh, a few more words about chimpanzee-specific adaptation. This is uh, one testes and one brain of a chimpanzee in Uganda. It gives you an idea of the size of their testes or the, the other brain. And you see some really interesting anatomical adaptation. The penis of chimpanzees and bonobos is not identical, but both are filiform. They actually fuse the, the, the corpora cavernosa into a single thing. They have no glands, penis, and they have to because they have to d- deposit the sperm with the plug in the back right next to the cervix. And so this was actually measured in captive chimpanzees in Gabon, and this shows you how big the distance gets to the cervix when a female is swollen. Many of these chimpanzees are out of luck. Their penises are simply, simply too short. So I want to say a few words about, about fathers in, in, in humans, and go back to variation. Uh, Jim Rilling, who's a Carter member, at, uh, who is an Emory, Uh, Usually, usually looks at the brain, uh, in in this case also looked at the testes. He had the guys on the gurney in the the imager, so he just moved up the gurney and also measured the volume of the testes. And he could show that men who have larger testes and more testosterone tend to report much less caregiving and don't react as much to voices of their kids. So this would argue that within us, within humans, you have different extremes and a trade-off between mating effort and parenting effort variation again. Estrus is often reported in humans. Uh, it's, it's known as heat or rut. It's named after a gadfly because animals get crazy. Your cows start mounting other cows. That's when you know that they are in heat. There's very little evidence for that. There's a number of reports of subtle ovulation clues possibly tracked by males, but rarely are they backed by precise hormonal data. Uh, so I don't really believe humans have estrus, and for that matter, most other primates also don't. But there are some strange behaviors in humans, and a good rule of thumb in evolution is if you see something you can't explain, and it's very strange and crazy, it's probably linked to sexual selection. So these are a few examples of sexual selection. And I want to mention um, a few things about breasts. So here are gelada baboons. This is a female that is not ovulating. She's actually lactating her child. Breastfeeding with both nipples at the same time. I think that's the only species of primate that can do that. Breasts, human breasts, we have no idea how old human breasts are. Uh, they figure very prominently on some of the oldest figurative art. Uh, this is the Venus of Dol Nivestonice. Uh, actually, the, it's the first, one of the oldest uh, ceramics known. It's out of clay. This is clay from PB that I made. And then I read up that she had four holes in her head. That's for feathers. Right? Prominent breasts, uh, people, whoever made that, we don't know. Was it the woman pregnant herself who made this? Possibly. Very Among the first figurative art, you see these human breasts. And human breasts are under extremely strong cultural norms. In the United States, female breasts, female nipples with a fat pad on are illegal. You remove the fat pad, and then you're legal, if you're trans, for example. Right? It's completely incredible what culture can do. And I'll end with this. One of the things that culture also does is obsess about things like menstruation. So Beverly Strassman, who was actually a postdoc here with Jack Bradbury when I first came to UCSD 30 years ago, studied the Dogon in Mali. The Dogon people are not Muslim. They have a local animist belief. And they have this long tradition of menstruation huts. She measured hormones in the urine of the women, showed that they didn't cheat so what was happening was a cultural convention that forces on a signaling of menstrual stage. And many other cultures have these menstrual taboos, very famously in the temples in India or in Shinto temples. So this is a, almost a cultural sexual swelling that humans have, you know, push on females. And you know, in the bargain, she also showed, found absolutely no evidence for menstrual synchrony. So I'll end with that. My summary is that ovulation is indeed concealed in humans, but this is the case in most apes and most other primates. It's conspicuous ovulation in chimpanzees and bonobos that is uniquely derived. Menstruation cycles in humans are extremely variable, not synchronized, and seem to have very little influence on human sexual behavior. Significant blood loss during menstruation, high rates of early fetal wastage, pair bonding within larger groups, Mate parental eff- uh, male parental effort and provisioning, permanent breasts in females, personal names and kinship terms, cultural menstrual taboos each one of these is actually a separate topic of, of comparative anthropogeny and we, I look forward to talks about these in the future Thank you very much You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.